listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, I am proud of us. I'm proud to say. Oh, yes. I know what you're going to say. The burn pit story was a big story yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, our guest, Rosie Torres, appeared on our show and then went to the mainstream shows. She was on CNN. She was on MSNBC last mm-hmm. night. But the big news is that after our show ended, the Senate reconsidered the burn pit legislation and it passed. Mm-hmm. So having already passed the House of Representatives, it's now passed the Senate. It's going to go to the president for his signature. And... Uh, and become the law of the land, as they say. Good stuff. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. We've got a full show. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. Yesterday was uh, was primary day in a half a dozen different states. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that. There's a lot of news coming out of those various races. And I don't mean just political news. I mean um, things like this abortion uh, referendum in Kansas. Mm-hmm. In Kansas is one of the is one of the reddest most conservative and most Republican states in America. Mm-hmm. And by a vote of 60 to 40, mm-hmm. Kansans rejected a constitutional amendment that would have allowed the legislature to ban abortion. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's early. We're not really sure what this means in the greater scheme of things, but this is something that the Democratic National Committee has got to be examining today to figure out how to move forward in other states. And I also think it really shows how, um, you know, issues have been sort of the state of our political system, right, where we have these two two huge parties with very, very overlapping ideologies, particularly when it comes to, you know, foreign affairs, Mm -hmm. um, have become kind of so incoherent that you can't even put like issues. Yeah. You can't arrange sort of issues coherently into sort of these are kind of conservative and these right. are these are more uh, left wing. Right. Mm-hmm. It also, I think, reflects the fact that we, we know this already. Most Americans want abortion to be legal and accessible under a lot of conditions. Right. Yes. If not, most Americans don't want it to be, you know, available under any circumstances mm-hmm. at all. Right. Um, but generally speaking, people want to have a, a, for abortion to be legal, for abortion to be legal, you know, for quite a long way into into pregnancy, you know, before fetal viability. And uh, in, and this is clear. And if you give them the opportunity to vote on it by itself, right, mm-hmm. and not as a package, then it seems the lesson seems to be that they will come out and do that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. can you. You know, uh, how how do you place that issue in, in other races, right? That's how do you, how do you sort of, how do you create a hierarchy where you can get people to say, well, yeah, I, we need abortion means this much to me that I will either overlook these other issues or right. whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, this is an ongoing battle inside each party mm-hmm. is should you be a single issue party? And some people believe that, or, or some people choose to be single issue voters. Yeah. And uh, and they're OK with that. Yeah. So th- this bears watching. It's I, I, I was fascinated by it as it was coming through last night. Also, it bears watching is this uh, Department of Justice lawsuit against the state of Idaho. Uh, yes. The first one, they launched it yesterday. It's the first challenge from the federal government to a state's uh, abortion ban. Mm-hmm. Idaho had this trigger law that they'd passed in 2020 that would 
uh, go into effect 30 days after any Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. That, of mm-hmm. course, happened in late June. The Idaho law is I didn't realize wild. how restrictive it was until you said yeah. something. So it bans, it, it criminalizes all abortion, mm-hmm. but allows prosecutorial defenses for cases of rape, incest, and in if the life of the mother is uh, in immediate danger. Right. Uh, and so there have been discussions of this of this law prior to this saying, like, yeah, if you want to have an abortion, you want to talk a doctor into doing something that is a criminal act that they will then have to just defend themselves in court about over afterward. You're going to have to bring a police report that says you were raped mm-hmm. or you are going to have to be almost dying. Uh, and so Merrick Garland said what, what they've said before, this is going to be the the. A DOJ's tack is that this violates federal law that requires medical providers to offer emergency medical treatment. And they're saying, you know, if a woman is undergoing a miscarriage that threatens a septic infection or hemorrhage, if you're suffering from severe preeclampsia, mm-hmm. um, that emergency departments are going to have to provide this service. So we'll see. I mean, if it's if if they lose. Right. That's that's bad. <laughs> Can you imagine the political situation in this country when these states start prosecuting women or mm-hmm. prosecuting doctors? I don't know how many states. Yeah, I, I think this is the distinction. I am not sure how many states. Uh, I genuinely don't know mm-hmm. how many states decide they're going to prosecute someone seeking the abortion mm-hmm. versus someone providing Performing the abortion. Mm-hmm. From what I could see in the Idaho law, it only criminalizes people who perform abortions. That is not that is, you know. I think not the case across the board, mm-hmm. but certainly some states will um, step away from the icky situation right. of prosecuting the actual pregnant person, right. and just leave it on the leave the providers to to take the risk or not. The state of Georgia uh, announced something very um, predictable, I oh, yeah. guess. Uh, yesterday, they said that uh, beginning immediately, uh, pregnant women can uh, can take their embryos as tax uh, deductions. Yeah. On their income taxes. As soon as there is a detectable heartbeat. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Now, they don't say, I actually looked it up today. They don't say, you know, what do you have to include with your tax returns to prove you're pregnant? You provide a pregnancy test? Yeah. Or a letter from your doctor? Or do they just take your word for it? They should just let you provide a pregnancy test. You know, yeah. screw these people. That's right. Sure. Here, give me that. Give me that three thousand yeah, dollar deduction, I'll take regardless it. of whether this pregnancy is carried uh, to full term, regardless of right. whether you have a miscarriage, right. regardless of whether you have an abortion. Yeah. You know, the, it reminds me of of this news a couple of weeks ago that this woman in Texas was pulled over for driving in the HOV lane, mm-hmm. and she said, oh, "I'm I'm pregnant," mm-hmm. and she's got a legitimate. Point there. Yeah. Like, what do you want? To, where, how? Where does this end? Right. Where exactly. does this end? If you are a person with all of the rights of a, a person, mm-hmm. the instant you have fertilization of this egg. Exactly. And the other, the irony here is, you know, people should be more supported by our public health and social safety system Indeed. in this United States during pregnancies. Right. So on one hand, like, yeah, okay. I support, I support people while they're pregnant, having more, more money. Yes. You know, cause they certainly, they don't get support uh, enough support, but like, uh, what if we could just support the, the people who choose to be pregnant and support those people mm-hmm. who are actually undergoing this this process and and need that care, right? right. And attentiveness and and oversight and uh, and support and whatever, and not just you know 
deciding that a fetus is a person and can ride in the HOV lane. Right. I mean, I, who knows this, how this that is going to go This is what it's down. come to already yeah. at this early stage. There were a couple of other uh, things in the news that, that caught my eye. You know, we've reported on uh, the Secret Service deleting its uh, text messages from January 6th. Mm-hmm. Then we learned uh, at the end of last week that uh, Donald Trump's Secretary of Homeland Security and Acting Deputy Secretary of Homeland mm-hmm. Security also deleted their text messages from January 6th. Now we learn that Trump's secretary of defense, secretary of the army and secretary of the Navy all had their text messages deleted. Mm-hmm. Now the excuse is that when you're no longer a senior um, political appointee in government and you leave and you turn in your phone, they automatically delete everything. But newsflash, it's a felony to delete the text messages, mm-hmm. right? It's it falls under the the um, Preservation of Federal Documents Act. You can't delete them. Mm-hmm. They're official documents, even though they're just text messages. Plus, everybody's holding on to all this stuff for their memoirs, right? I mean, Always. you know, like it, I mean, how else are you going to make money, right? This is Always. the whole this is the whole setup. You're yeah. absolutely right. So yeah. there's there's an independent um, uh, pressure group that has been spearheading this effort to uh, to ensure that people retain the text messages that they write. This is a serious setback, mm-hmm. but they're petitioning Congress now to come up with legislation to force um, bureaus and departments to uh, to cut it out for mm-hmm. heaven's sake. I wanted to talk real briefly too about um, about a fellow by the name of Michael Langley. Okay. He is the first black four-star general in the history of the Marine Corps, which is an absolutely wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. The shame is that it took us until 2022 for there to be a black four-star general. Um, The embarrassing part of this is what has the Army done, Mm -hmm. or not the Army, but the uh, the military done in its infinite wisdom, Mm -hmm. is they've named him Effective Saturday, this coming Saturday, they've named him Commander of AFRICOM. Yeah. Ouch. I mean, I do see that he's, ser- you know, he served in Japan. He served in Afghanistan. He served in Somalia. Right. So there you go. Uh, but there's but- not one open job anywhere in the world for a four-star general. They have to send him to AFRICOM. Yeah. It's you know, a little. When I was in prison, mm-hmm. um, I, I wrote a, a blog from uh, from my first Martin Luther King Day in prison. Okay. So it's Martin Luther King Day, and the warden sends around uh, this memo. Uh, let's celebrate Martin Luther King Day. I don't know what the heck that's supposed to mean in prison. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what it means. They gave us fried chicken, mm. greens, what? Uh huh, cornbread, and watermelon. I mean, it sounds at lunch. Great. <laughs> not for that day. Sounds like a nice meal that you'd like to have every imagine? day. Uh, but that's a. That's and I read a this blog. It's like, how choice. did they, how did they decide this? Did they was it a bunch of white people sitting around a table saying, "Well, uh, what do they like to eat?" I heard that they like fried chicken. Uh, all of this. Smell. Oh God, this is making my skin crawl. That's awful. So here uh, we are now. Terrible. 
AFRICOM. You know what I will say, which is not not to disagree with uh, what you are suggesting here, which is it's just like, oh, yeah, oh, sure, send, send that guy to Africa. Or yeah. I'm sure he feels a great affinity for or whatever. Right. Uh, but it is probably uh, AFRICOM where things are about to be heating up as our Cold oh, War yes. uh, with China heats up. I you think know, you're if, exactly right. If the past right. repeats itself. So yes. if, he wants, if he wants to work, that's probably going to be the place to be. Well, one of the first things he's going to have to confront is the fact that AFRICOM is based in Germany, mm-hmm. in Stuttgart, Germany, because not one single African country wants us there. Yeah. Now, that's pretty important, I would say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I went to Germany one time uh, to give a speech. It was part of this whistleblower uh, conference. And I got a call at my hotel from a guy who said that Angela Merkel's national security advisor would like to see me. Mm -hmm. Well, I had never met anybody in the German government before. I said I would be delighted. So they invited me to this restaurant and it was the national security advisor and this aide. And they wanted my opinion as both a former CIA officer and as something of a dissident on how to get AFRICOM out of their country. Mm -hmm. They don't want AFRICOM in Germany. Mm -hmm. They thought it was going to be there for just, you know, a minute Mm -hmm. and then it was going to move to Africa. Mm -hmm. And certainly the Africans don't want it. Mm -hmm. So... Weird. This is going to be an ongoing problem. Weird her. Nobody wants the American military when we know that this is the force promoting uh, peace and justice around the world and protecting democracy and all the stuff that uh, That's right. Nancy Pelosi was saying in Taiwan yesterday. That is right. Yeah. Um, you pointed something out to me that I think is very important. The, the New York Post has taken a swipe at the New York Times over um, the fact that Ayman Zawahiri was killed in a home owned by the the leader and founder of the Haqqani Network. Mm-hmm. I think his name is Abdus Siraj, something like that. Mm-hmm. We always just called him Haqqani. Uh, crazy as it sounds, it's true. This this What happened is the New York Times, well, let me, let me back up. In the immediate post-9-11 period, we reached out as a government, we reached out to Haqqani and we said, look, we're going to blast the daylights out of Afghanistan and we're going to kill bin Laden. So this is your, your chance to be on the side of the good guys mm-hmm. and an old boss. Of Sorry, mine, what year was this? 2001, mm-hmm. October. An old boss of mine actually went to Afghanistan from Pakistan to meet with Haqqani mm-hmm. in person. Mm-hmm. And Haqqani's like, yeah, you, you guys are okay, but I'm with the Taliban and with bin Laden. So this he isn't going to work out. He picked the winner. Yeah. Well, he did. He did. He did. I mean, what, he he picked the winner. He picked the winner. And now Haqqani is, instead of living in, you know, a cave in eastern Afghanistan, he's in the center of Kabul mm-hmm. where he's quite wealthy mm-hmm. and he owns the whole neighborhood mm-hmm. where Ayman Zawahiri was was found, including the house that Zawahiri was, was living in. Mm-hmm. And so Haqqani wrote an op-ed in the LA Times in 2020 talking about the Doha process. The New York Times. Uh, uh, Yes, the New York Times. Sorry. Um, What did I say? LA. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I've been reading the LA Times all morning. Oh. Yeah. There's a terrific... Anyway, (laughs) uh, we can talk about that later. (laughs) The New York Times. He he published this op-ed in the New York Times saying, this is a serious process. Even if we don't like each other in the interest of peace, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it'll all work out. That's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to be proud of Mm -hmm. that the New York Times sought out this enemy of the United States 
and allowed him to offer up an opinion on the peace process. Mm-hmm. Which so, we were actively negotiating, right? It's yeah, not as though it's right. not as though they went and dug up. Well, I was gonna. It's, I was like, who's a, who's someone who we frame as a bad guy who we are also not actively funding and negotiating? And I can't. <laughs> right. You know what, John? I am drawing a blank. <laughs> uh, but but if he had, you know, if they had looked up like a real enemy and not someone we were sort of e- eager to come to some kind of agreement with, you know, maybe yes. you could like ca- cast a has some side eye on it. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is it, you know, I don't know who it was that said the only way to make peace with your neighbor is to make peace with your neighbor. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And before we go to our to our first break, um, there's a piece in Foreign Policy magazine that's remarkably consistent with what we're hearing uh, in the form of leaks from the administration mm-hmm. on uh, negotiations for the JCPOA. Oh, is this about how it's Iran's team is inept? Yeah, the team is inept. Uh, the Iranian president's an idiot. Uh, they're responsible for the impasse, at mm-hmm. least partially. Mm-hmm. And then there was a leak that came out of the White House two days ago uh, saying that uh, the Iranians aren't serious about this. And if they really were committed to the agreement, well, we're the ones that pulled out of the agreement. Yeah. They observed the agreement. You know, I say this all the time, too. The 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 mechanism that was being used at the Iranian nuclear sites with cameras, inspections and lead seals on the doors. This is exactly the same process that we used with the Iraqis. Mm -hmm. And it works. Mm -hmm. It works. And whether we like the Iranians politics or not. They were abiding by it. Yeah, there's no. We're the ones that withdrew. Yeah, there is really no doubt about that. But I mean, who? we don't need it, right? Because we just say, like, we act like right. Donald Trump was the only president who just baldly, you know, bald face lied. Yes. Uh, but they all do. Yep. We we are going to take a short break. And... I don't think we are, John. Oh, we're not? I want to get to the. Yeah, I think we can skip this break because okay. I know we have our guest on the line. Oh, good. Uh, good and good, I just good. like to be contrary sometimes. And That's so okay. I want to get to I want to get to these conversations about uh, the fallout of Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. I want to yeah. talk about Yemen. I want to talk about uh, this. ooh mean move by OPEC plus. And so I think uh, without further ado, we can bring on the gentleman who's going to join us for these conversations. We have Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's a veteran and a former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. Dr. Walalu, it's great to have you on again. Good to be with you, Michelle. Um, You know, we talked a lot about Nancy Pelosi's arrival in Taiwan yesterday, but I I wanted to start by getting your thoughts on, on the fallout from that visit. We have China, as as we all know, preparing live fire drills in six areas around Taiwan that are going to start tomorrow. It's going to demonstrate military capabilities. It did not have the last time a U.S. Speaker of the House visited the island some 30 years ago. Uh, we have continued criticism from within the United States. Uh, the New York Times today had a story on how the visit could undermine U.S. efforts to build relationships in East Asia, noting that our allies there might have wanted— to be consulted about such an inflammatory move. Uh, you even have Australia uh, very specifically not just calling on China to back off, but asking all all participants how they could de-escalate tensions and promote peace, which is, again, not these, these little fun jaunts. Um, the Washington Post in an editorial called the move unwise and said now, you know, the damage must be contained. Uh, and so for all of this, uh, I guess I, I want to ask you, does Xi Jinping look good here for showing some restraint so far, or does he 
look like he's back down from a challenge. I sort of wonder if we look back on this visit, you know, five or 10 years from now, uh, how do we see it? Well, I think uh, for uh, the Chinese president Xi, he's going to be, he's prudent. He's very, very prudent as to, okay, do I act militarily, which I do have the capabilities of doing, mm -hmm. I do, at what cost? Uh, knowing that for both countries, the United States and China, the timing of the trip will serve both countries' domestic agendas. Hmm. Remember, for us, just for your listeners, for us in the, in the U.S., we have the upcoming midterm elections. Mm -hmm. okay? For the Chinese, they have the upcoming elections as far as the presidential one, in which uh, Xi Jinping is going to be seeking his third term. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he does not want to risk it by sort of, if he gets engaged there, and this is where the calculations comes in, the strategic one, that is, mm -hmm. as to do I rock the boat right now uh, by escalating this to a military level, mm -hmm. which it could backfire on me, me meaning uh, the uh, the Chinese president. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he has to also be cognizant of what if I don't act? Yeah. Am I just bluffing? Am I losing credibility? Yeah. And because one thing for sure that Xi Jinping wants to have in his legacy when he's gone, whatever, is that it was under his watch, his watch, the reunification of the Taiwan with the mainland took place. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And this is what I believe the, the idea of the live fires, the exercises that's starting actually tomorrow, mm -hmm. I'm taking, uh, since, yes, this is the second time since 1995 if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and the reason why is that is because that's usually how China expresses or displays its displeasure with uh, visits by high-ranking officials. And knowing that Nancy Pelosi is the second highest-ranking uh, officer in the U.S. government, mm -hmm. it's King Rich, one in some 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And perhaps showing the United States. I mean, we talked about this yesterday, right? If the U.S. wants if the U.S. sees war with China as inevitable, now is the time to do it, right? Not uh, not when China is further into its sort of development and uh, and modernization and revitalization. And maybe this is also intended to say that you you have already missed that boat, right? This is not it's it's you, that that time has passed, and it would be unwise to engage in this now. Uh, the other provocative thing happening uh, kind of under the radar is that the U.S. and South Korea are resuming the joint military exercises that were scaled down or halted completely during the Trump administration, when for a few years we did make real progress toward a true negotiation with, with North Korea. To hell with all that. Mm -hmm. We're going to resume these drills that, you know, we know are a major provocation. And the Daily Beast today says the drills later this month will also include a decapitation exercise where they play at invading the heart of the North Korean command structure and taking out the leader, to use their phrasing. Uh, so it seems like we not only want to goad China into uh, more drills or more, we uh, also apparently want to see another North Korean nuclear test. <laughs> Is that what we should make of this move? Well, that would explain to me personally as an analyst mm -hmm. why she had to make stop in South Korea and Japan. Yeah. That was one of the reasons for it, is to ensure ahead of time the commitments of those two countries in case there is a military uh, or, or, or hot war, shall we say, which I don't foresee between the U.S. and China, mm -hmm. but just in case. That's the reason why she stopped in, in South Korea and Japan. Mm -hmm. Now, 
There is one thing that your listeners need to truly understand, that North Korea will be the wild card into all this. Hypothetically, and this is just what-if scenario, mm-hmm. it is an exchange of fire between the U.S. and China. All China needs to do is to sort of give the green light to North Korea to, you know, do some little firing towards where the U.S. troops, because remember, we do have about forty-seven to 50,000 troops in South Korea. Mm-hmm. We have over 25,000 in, in Japan. You can just see what it all means. Mm-hmm. What I find very interesting about this, just this morning I found out, is that Moscow has expressed its support to China if asked. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the writing on the wall that should there be any uh, escalation to the level of a military exchange? And once again, I do not see that happening. Mm-mm. Russia at least expressed that interest if China wants it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that tells me right there as to why China is confident in conducting live fire exercises. Mm-hmm. You know, as to those who say, well, China's going to just invade Taiwan. Well, first of all, how can you invade your own country? <laughs> Second, it won't be wise for China to do it militarily, because if they want to do it, all they need to do is impose uh, an economic blockade. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Which they have sort of dropped a little bit of a taste of, because I think they, they are now boycotting, a, you know, a handful of goods from Taiwan, right? I think it's like citrus fruit and some other stuff, right? So demonstrating not only militarily what they are going to be able to do if— um, the United States continues with this and, and Taiwan continues to go along with it. Exactly. And, and, and that is why I don't see the, the military exchange at this point, because mm-hmm. uh, even what we may think of China, China has been pragmatic about will it risk uh, destabilizing a global system that made it rich, that mm-hmm. made it strong? Mm-hmm. You know, would you want to do that? It just... Yeah, no. Yeah, I, that's why I don't see them doing it. However... The economic aspects of it, it's on the table. And this is, to me personally, why China made it clear a couple months ago to neighboring countries that, you know, it's to your benefit not to let the U.S. naval assets on your territory because you could become a target. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The message that China was sending back then uh, to those countries. This is why you're seeing ASEAN countries, for example, staying neutral. Yeah. As like you mentioned at the beginning, Michelle, most of the countries in the region were like, you know, how come we have not been uh, consulted on this? Mm -hmm. Don't want any tensions next door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's also let's talk about energy, too, because, uh, man, I guess I I don't know how to interpret this other than maybe Joe Biden didn't quite uh, humiliate himself enough in Saudi Arabia last month. Right. Mm. Because the whole point of that visit to Jeddah, to the Gulf Cooperation Council was very specifically, you know, a month before the visit, it was like, oh, yeah, we're going to try and get them to increase production. Then they dropped that line and they were like, no, no, no. He's not going to walk away with an immediate announcement of an increase in, in OPEC plus oil production. But after. He talks to MBS and the GCC. Uh, The meeting that was scheduled for this month, they will announce a a greater uh, production increase. Uh, Well, apparently uh, OPEC Plus has agreed to increase output by 100,000 barrels a day in September, which is being assessed as as just a flat 
insult to Joe Biden. Uh, The group had increased output by 650,000 barrels a day in July and August. Um, I will say the New York Times story on it quoted some experts as saying, well, you know, high prices have dampened demand and demand is a big part of the equation here. And OPEC plus needs a good 90 days to prepare for any serious increase, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I want to ask how, how you think we should interpret this move by the OPEC plus format. Well, that's nonsense for that individuals from the Wall Street who are saying yeah. that, because the reality on the ground suggests otherwise. Basically, the meeting that uh, President Biden attended with the uh, the Gulf uh, uh, states, when they straight, I mean, straightforward, they said no. <laughs> that was right there an insult to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know. Uh, later on, it was in a private conversation between MBS and President Biden, uh, behind closed doors, by which the Saudis said, oh, sure, we will increase production by about 12 million barrels in 2027. Mm-hmm. That's another insult, culturally speaking. As one who's familiar with the culture, how these kind of uh, statements are interpreted culturally, that's a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Basically, here is what the Saudis are doing. They are playing uh, Biden, or the U.S. for that matter, knowing that what we do not know openly is that the Saudis are buying oil from Russia. Mm. And here is the reason why. They're buying it, even though you and I know that the Saudis are a top oil producer. Mm -hmm. They're buying it from Russia at a discounted price while selling their own oil at a higher price. Oh, that would be so smart. <laughs> that would be uh, so smart. Well, which, by the way, Michelle, I was shocked that I was not reporter here. Mm-hmm. I had to check on this from somebody on the ground. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what is happening. This is why you see in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia is going in the right direction, mm-hmm. the energy. Mm-hmm. This also explains why the Saudis are open to the idea of selling their oil to the Chinese in return for the yuan currency instead of the dollar. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that would that would make sense, right? Might as well keep everybody sweet. And also, it seems like no matter what uh, the Saudis do to the U.S., we are going to keep giving them what they want. You know, you you have the State Department uh, just approving a potential sale of a three billion dollars worth of Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia and more than two billion dollars worth of the THAAD missile defense systems to the UAE. I mean, these are just approving the sales that I think Congress could still step in and stop them. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I wonder simultaneously you have this insult to Joe Biden in terms of oil production. Uh, And then you have the U.S. going, oh, yeah, sure, we'll give you another uh, $5 billion worth of uh, defense technology. I mean, what should how should we understand our relationship with uh, some of our Middle Eastern partners in light of these two moves? Well, that tells me right there how the Saudis can really decide what they want as far as on the table, because all they need to do, as I always used to say, Mm -hmm. in unemployment, goes up in the United States, all the Saudis need to do is write check. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this is to me, that's the same thing. My, my guess is that during that private conversation between Biden and MBS, the deal was talked about in the idea that, sure, we can show that we still support the U.S. by, because what's $3 billion to the Saudis? Nothing. Yeah. It's nothing, you know, knowing that the system itself, because the Patriot missile systems, did not stop 
the the rockets coming out of uh, Yemen, the, the Houthis at the time, it did not prevent that. Mm-hmm. And this is why you're seeing, for example, the S-300 system of the Russians, the S-400, uh, are being now more circulated in the Middle East among certain countries like Turkey, Iran, Syria, mm-hmm. and you, you might see a few others uh, soon will be purchasing that system because they realize the Patriot system doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So to me, basically, this deal, if it's approved, uh, it, it, it's just another way of the Saudis pleasing the Americans by, okay, give them $2 billion and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Since you uh, mentioned Yemen, I, I wanted to ask you about a little bit of good news today, which is that this truce in Yemen has been renewed for another couple of months. Uh, the extension, of course, in- includes a commitment for more intense negotiation between the warring factions in the country. Uh, and the U.N. says that during the period of calm, uh, this is the third extension of a truce, I believe, uh, there's been a 60 percent reduction in civilian casualties and a nearly 50 percent decrease in displacement in addition to other positive changes, which sounds great for the people of Yemen. And so I wonder, you know, how hopeful should we be that, you know, th- this is not the same, of course, as a negotiated peace, but. This is also not a resumption of hostilities, really. So, so uh, how, how should we take this news? It's just a temporary. This stuff is like no different than what's going on in Libya. Mm-hmm. It's no different than what's going on in northern part of Syria. You know, the UN approved another six months, I believe, which the Russians and they have have agreed to to allow humanitarian to. You know, in the Yemeni case, it will be the same as usual mm-hmm. because. You'll see this, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, this period of uh, 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 settled peace, shall we say. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely correct, Michelle. If it's not in a treaty signed by the parties, it doesn't hold any, 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 any uh, substance. Mm-hmm. Because if we are to truly, we, the Americans, truly want to help the process, then we need to stop our sharing of the intelligence with the Saudis to bomb the target. Yes to do some other things, so it is, uh, in addition to providing weapons and so forth. So, and we are not the only one. The Brits do it, the Germans, and the French, mm-hmm. do it, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, this is just a temporary. It's not going to hold for long. Mm-hmm. I also want to ask you about the um, the gas rationing plan in Europe that has taken effect this week. Um, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much people are going to start to feel this and, and how much the continent can actually ration before lifestyles and economies really start to change. Well, that's very interesting because I am doing uh, on the locals tonight a conversation about did the, uh, re- did the sanctions on Russia's energy now put in Europe into recession? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is indeed because the city of Hanover in Germany, for example, the government has already asked people now to cut down on their hot showers, okay? Mm-hmm. The parliament, the House of Representatives in, in Germany, turning the lights off at night, basically, which they never did. But this is an indication for what, what is coming as the winners getting closer, of course. But also the indication should be not just in Germany, but we need to look at Italy. We need to look at uh, uh, Netherlands. We need to look at Spain, which has been quietly not talked about as to the financial turmoil that's going on in Spain. It's a, almost an indication for uh, an upcoming collapse mm-hmm. in Spain. So in Europe as a whole, a recession is settling, but also they are realizing that the sanctions imposed on Russia are now backfiring or have been backfiring for some time, and it's only going to get worse for Europe. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, sort of on on the topic of 
trying to have some rational conversations about what is actually happening, both in the war in Ukraine and also in the response to it. You know, I, I wanted to ask about uh, this interview by former Labor Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, uh, in which he points out that pouring more arms into Ukraine is not going to bring peace and that expanding NATO is also not going to achieve that end. Uh, he, he said it's good that Europe has been so welcoming to Ukrainian refugees, and it's shameful that the continent has turned a cold shoulder to so many others. He also said it, he was certain that his staunch support for the Palestinian people and their right to live free from Israeli occupation and apartheid uh, was definitely part of the successful effort to expel him from the party he'd been a member of for decades. And for saying these very sensible things, I think. He is being smeared, of course, as an anti-Semite, you know, which is what they did to him uh, in the process of trying to boot him from the party. And of course, you know, a, a lover of authoritarians, the world order. Um, Corbyn and the convulsions of the Labour Party over the past couple of years are, are one of the best examples, I think, and the most high profile examples of the lengths that mainstream political figures will go to to purge anti-war voices from the left. And so, I, you know, I just wanted to ask what you make of Corbyn's uh, commitment to principle. You know, like he hasn't backed down. He has suffered the consequences. And how concerned should we be that he continues to be ostracized and really, you know, smeared as a monster for expressing, you know, these these very uh, true on their face sentiments? Yeah, well, it looks like these days speaking the truth is a crime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. It's, it's very sad. It's not a laughing matter. No. It's sad and painful mm -hmm. for me to, as an American, when we say, you know, speak the truth, whatever, and all of a sudden you're being ostracized, you're being marginalized, and you're being blacklisted. Mm -hmm. Why? Just because you spoke the truth. And, and this is the reality of this uh, Ukraine conflict. Because they didn't want to hear the truth that it was NATO that created the issue, that it was the U.S. that contributed to the issue. Mm -hmm. And now the same thing. Are we doing the same in regarding Taiwan? Are we doing the same in some other parts of the world? And enough is enough. And when some of us Americans speak the truth, all of a sudden we become labeled as, no, you hate America. You don't like America. Mm -hmm. Enemy of America. Hold on a second. I care. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Because as an American citizen, I am seeing in the streets how people now are wondering whether they're going to have something to eat for dinner or not. Mm -hmm. They are wondering with how we're going to survive moving forward mm -hmm. with the taxes, with the inflation, with the recession. How much can you squeeze the middle class society uh, or, or members of society here in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we need to be realistic as to those voices of the truth are meant to be there to guide, are meant to be there to help direct our country where he needs to go. Politicians don't care, and I'll say it straightforward. It's because when you look at inflation, for example, either here in the U.S. or in Europe, who's going to be end up paying the price? It's the citizen, yeah. the politician. Yeah, absolutely. So Corbyn, I can see why he's, he's going to be targeted that way. And shame, I respect the guy, you know. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we seem to be in, 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 in a setting where uh, truth, as I said earlier, becomes a crime if you're speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And he, he was, a, you know, the, the not exactly the canary in the coal mine, but I think the probably highest profile figure we have seen brought down uh, for exactly this. That was Dr. David Walalu, who's a geopolitical consultant. He's a global speaker. You can find his show Geopolitics in Conflict on YouTube. And you can also find his latest book, The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. Uh, Dr. Walalu, thanks again for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a quick break here and come right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We told you on Monday about a series of FBI raids on properties in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Petersburg, Florida, owned by the African People's Socialist Party, a small, anti-colonialist group that supports reparations for African Americans, runs a community garden, and works to rehabilitate homes for the poor. In St. Louis a few years ago, they ran two unsuccessful candidates for city aldermen. Well, last Friday morning, teams of FBI agents with a military-style armored vehicle breached the door at the home of the group's founder, Omali Yeshitela, threw a stun grenade into the home, detained Yeshitela and his wife, and confiscated their computer. Why the 80-year-old man is being accused of failing to fill out a form on the Justice Department's website, indicating that his group may have accepted funds from a man connected to the Russian government. More broadly, the FBI says that a Russian national by the name of Alexander Ionov provided money to the African People's Socialist Party and asked them to circulate a petition to the United Nations saying that U.S. colonialism was oppressing black people here in the United States. Apparently, that's a crime. We're joined from Washington by Bruce Fine. Bruce is a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Welcome back, Bruce. Thank you for inviting me. Bruce, first, can you explain to us what the Foreign Agents Registration Act is and why it's been in the news so much lately? Uh, One, it's oftentimes um, misconstrued as as part of a, a companion bill that requires registration with the attorney general. Um, if uh, you have any connection at all with a foreign government. But the gist of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which goes back to 1939, uh, requires that if an individual in the United States uh, is working at the behest, the request, the direction of a foreign principal, mm-hmm. an individual, a foreign political party, a foreign government, um, that person must register with the United States Department of Justice uh, whether or not they're receiving any money at all uh, and disclose who the foreign principal is and whether there are any terms and conditions of compensation at six-month intervals described to the uh, government exactly what context they have had uh, with uh, United States officials. And uh, they also, if they distribute literature, must identify themselves as uh, agents of a foreign government, uh, which obviously prejudices the uh, impartiality of any Mm -hmm. recipient or reader 
uh, to think that this is uh, the same level of someone who's expressing views not as a foreign agent. But that's the gist of it. And they're both civil and criminal penalties for violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Until recently, there are virtually never any criminal prosecution. Right. Uh, the, the it, it, You know, it's, it's hardly a serious violation. We've never had a situation in the United States where foreign agents are somehow uh, taking over the organs of the Washington Post and New York Times and uh, the major media companies and somehow uh, spreading views that wouldn't be received if you know, they weren't identified as foreign agents. Um uh, in any event, it's typically been a civil proceeding. When I was at the Justice Department, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, I can't uh, remember a single case ever even arising under wow. it. It was viewed as such a stepchild and so insignificant in protecting the national security of the United States. I think it was upgraded uh, because of the you know uh, new uh, preoccupation the United States now has with China and Russia. Uh, so that it's now hysterical. Anybody who has any connection with either government in any forum is a immediately suspect, uh, an enemy, so to speak. Uh, and so there's a clear, in my judgment, almost hysterical overreaction uh, on anyone who has any connection to China and Russia these days. Yeah, I was going to ask you why the law was so unevenly enforced, but I think you've answered it. I think that there's probably been a policy decision made at the Justice Department um, and not necessarily uh, a partisan one to just really go after people who may have ties to to Russia or China. Well, that's correct. I don't think that's a, that's not solely the case. I mean, there have been recent cases about uh, persons receiving money from the 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 wealthy uh, uh, Persian Gulf states, Qatar, uh-huh. Saudi Arabia, you know, who have this vast vast amount of money. Uh, uh, they typically try to get it into the political campaign system, and rather than being agents, they are uh, suspected of committing uh, a crime under the federal election laws of making foreign contributions to influence the outcome of American elections. But I would say those are the three foci, if you will be, today, Mm -hmm. China, Russia, and uh, the Middle East uh, wealth funds, which have limitless money to try to influence the United States. Because the fact is, most of these mini-states couldn't survive, I know, if there was a concerted yeah. effort to, to dispose of them. They don't have any army. They don't have any—their uh, they, they, indigenous people are about one-tenth of the workers. Most of all are imported. Uh, and so they're very fragile. And without the money, uh, you could topple them very easily. Bruce, uh I want to ask your your thoughts on this FBI raid. What do you think the goal is, philosophically, of raiding uh, the properties of a political party that has a couple of dozen members? This African People's Socialist Party is a non-entity. Why send armored vehicles, throw stun grenades at 5 o'clock in the morning and the like to, to investigate their failure to fill out a form? Well, if there's any Russian connection, you and you should know, John, having worked at the CIA, uh, it's a matter of developing statistics when you go to the Congress to try to upgrade your budget the next time around. I mean, at one time, you know, the FBI had more FBI agents infiltrating Communist Party <laughs> CPSU <laughs> uh, meetings than there were CPSU members. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it was utterly ridiculous. It was so tiny, and they say. But 
you know, that was what Congress wanted to see in order to uh, get your budget uh, fully funded. And so uh, my belief is that if the FBI uh, and the Justice Department can add this as a case concerning China and Russia, it bolsters their statistics to go back to the Congress. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look into the details anyway. Uh, And so this, given the current climate, even this is utterly insignificant, uh, it's not going to prejudice them before Congress, as uh, J. Edgar Hoover never got any uh, uh, throwback from Congress, you know, by using more FBI agents to infiltrate communist party meetings than there were communist party members. He stayed at the top of his game till the very end. Right. Bruce, uh, these FARA prosecutions uh, seem to be a trend. We, we read about them more and more often all the time. And although the maximum penalty is a year in jail, uh, people like Maria Butina got a lot worse than a year in jail. You know, most people get a slap on the hand. Why do you think the Justice Department and the FBI are being so heavy handed in the enforcement of this one particular law? We've got thousands and thousands of felonies on the books in the federal code. Why focus on this one? I don't think it's um, necessarily focused on uh, FARA, you know, in the abstract. Okay. Uh, it's on FARA that has a political uh, dimension to it, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Russia or China or you know, somebody who's trying to influence you know, a campaign in favor against, you know, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Uh, the FARA uh, cases ordinarily have that political component. so. It's one that can be easily manipulated, you know, to target your enemies. Um, and that's what FARA is about. If you consider the scope of FARA, and I think it may be unconstitutional, um, it, it's so broad that if you sit down and, and, and even have a conversation over, you know, what you want to order for lunch with a foreign principal, uh, and, he, and you just chat about an idea and you say, hey, that's a wonderful idea. I think I'll write about it or speak about it in my column. Mm-hmm. Or on on radio. Well, are you become a foreign agent if if you if if an idea is planted in your head, you know, by a foreign principal, and you think it's a good idea, are you now acting at the behest of the direction? It's a language that's very broad and not defined, um, and so it's something that um, if the government wants to harass you with, given the, the vagueness of the language, they can do it. Uh, but I would imagine if you strictly applied FARA to the breadth that the department seems to think it, it, it extends, that they're vastly more fair violations. Mm-hmm. People talk to foreign principals all the time, get ideas, chat back and forth. That's what intellectual exchange is all about. You know, and if you have to go register every time you get a new idea that was planted to your head by a foreign principal, uh, there are a lot of violations out there going on process. Right. Yeah, I agree. I want to switch topics a little bit, uh, if I may. The state of Georgia yesterday announced that residents can take tax deductions for embryos, right? If a woman is pregnant, she gets a tax deduction, something that seems wildly unwieldy to me. The state's position is that if a fetus is a person, then the parents should have the tax deduction. What are your thoughts on this? Is this workable? First of all, Georgia can't decide. You know, how to interpret the federal internal revenue code. So I don't think if I was even in Georgia, I would take a tax deduction on your federal tax. <laughs> so the second thing is, of course, it's not workable. How, you know, you could, you could conceive, well, okay, the fetus begins at the first day of uh, 
of, uh, of the implantation of the egg and the sperm. Right. Uh, and kind of import, how are you going to verify or corroborate whether the deduction was proper or not? You're going to go in and, and, and uh, investigate uh, every single person's home and to have a, a pregnancy test by, by all the women. You know, it's utterly and completely ridiculous. Um, and, uh, and, and moreover, it, it does underscore, in my judgment, um, some of the ludicrous implications of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case, that's the one overturning Planned Parenthood and Casey and, uh, and Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Uh, because if you extend person, you know, as far as they do, if a fetus is a person uh, entitled to a deduction, and for all purposes under the Constitution, they're a person, uh, you've got to include them uh, in the, the population count, right? Read, how about Good read? point. Representation in the Congress. Yeah, you got to count fetuses too. They're people, um, and, <laughs> it, and have freedom of religion. You know, uh, well, what other rights do they have? Um, you know, not to be. Do they have a right? They're a person uh, to insist that the mother, you know, have the proper diet and do exercise, so it optimizes the likelihood of being born healthy, and they can control the mother. You know. And, and can a, a fetus have a guardian appointed then if it's a person? To protect- oh, boy, oh, boy. I, I never even thought of any of these issues. But I, and I bet you the state legislatures haven't thought of any of these issues. I'll bet you any money. It's so easy to say that uh, life begins at conception and walk away. It's much more difficult to actually address these constitutional questions. Bruce, uh, Senator Ron Wyden and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar earlier this summer sponsored a bill that would amend the Espionage Act, the Espionage Act to protect journalists. Uh, it would have had a direct impact on the case of Julian Assange, but the bill was defeated in committee on the House side. What do you think the prospects are for such a bill? Do you see support on the Hill for amending the Espionage Act in any way? It's a dicey proposition, you know, especially. When you have the kind of tension we now have with Russia and China, uh, where the brains go out the window and people react hormonally. Mm-hmm. In my view, um, the act needs to be amended, because I think it's currently a, a walking violation of the First Amendment, to require in any espionage prosecution the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the communication that allegedly violated the act caused actual damage or threatened imminent damage to the United States. I mean, right now the standard is, well, with reason to believe mm-hmm. something might in the future you know, pop up uh, that would hurt the United States. That's way too vague. If you're going to punish speech, uh, you ordinarily have to brigade it with some uh, reasonably imminent or actual harm to the national security of the United States. Otherwise, it's innocuous and protected. And the Supreme Court has held that true in other cases. For example, in the stolen metal honor case, you know, the Supreme Court said, no, you cannot punish somebody who's running for office from lying about whether or not, you know, they improperly claimed that they had been uh, awarded a, a medal of honor because of bravery in the time of military service. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even the Supreme Court has protected lies of that sort. Uh, but that, it seems to me, essential to make the Espionage Act work. because. The current interpretation, and one I think that was embraced by Judge Brinkman in your case, uh, is one that's almost indistinguishable from the British Official Secrets Act. Oh, yes. Simply, okay, 
to identify it as an official secret, it automatically it's a crime you disclose it, even if it has zero, zero adverse effect and never even threatened having an adverse effect on the United States. And think about this past case, the Pentagon Papers case, in which the United States claimed, uh, and they were prosecuting Daniel Ellsberg after they were unable to get the New York Times and Washington Post enjoined from publishing the Pentagon Papers. Oh, if you publish this, oh, the national security will be totally and completely damaged. Mm -hmm. We'll never end the Vietnam War. And, of course, that was garbage. And the Solicitor General at that time, um, who was later uh, a dean of of Harvard Law School, uh, shortly after I left, uh, Dean Griswold, um, he said later there wasn't a shred of evidence that there was any national security uh, interest at all uh, behind the Pentagon Papers. And, indeed, when they were published, it had zero impact on the Vietnam War, none whatsoever. Um, so that's what we need to get back to is free speech. And I think the amendment uh, needs to apply to everybody, not just journalists. Uh, and right. the standard ought to be actual or imminent harm because the disclosure. And none of this just made-up stuff and conceivable. I mean, anything conceivably you know, could become relevant and important. As you know, having worked at the agency, mm-hmm. Everybody says, well, there's a jigsaw puzzle, and it's possible, even though we don't know it, this would be the piece, and a huge jigsaw puzzle would give them the final clue to know X, Y, Z. That's way too speculative to justify a criminal prosecution. We have less than a minute left, and I just want to very quickly ask for your opinion on the direction of the January 6th committee. You've been following uh, their work. You've been consulting with them. Are you happy with the direction that this investigation is taking, or would you move it in a different direction? Well, I think the direction is fine, but they haven't escalated. I mean, it's truly stunning. They haven't subpoenaed Mike Pence, Donald Trump. Denied executive or you know, attorney-client privilege to Chip alone, which wasn't claimed by John Dean or, right. or uh, Clinton's lawyers. Uh, why are they not going to the very top echelons? I worked at Watergate from day one. You heard from all the tier one people. Yes. Ehrlichman, Mitchell, John Dean, Alex Butterfield. All these people called. And the top people here, we haven't even seen the members of Congress like Kevin McCarthy. No. We haven't seen. No. In fact, many of them have refused uh, preemptively. To, uh, to testify. And I apologize that we're out of time. We were joined from Washington by Bruce Fine. He's a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Yesterday was a good political day, if your name is Donald Trump. Trump endorsed candidates, won primaries for U.S. Senate and Secretary of State in Arizona. Trump's endorsed candidate for governor of Arizona is leading in a race that's still too close to call. An anti-Trump Republican congressman was ousted in Michigan. And in Missouri, one of the Eric's that Trump endorsed. The state attorney general, Eric Schmidt, beat former Governor Eric Greitens for the U.S. Senate nomination. The only bright spot for anti-Trumpers was that Kansas voters rejected a constitutional amendment that would have banned abortion or would have allowed the legislature to ban abortion. 
Keep in mind that many of the most radically pro-Trump candidates in these races were able to win with money provided to them by the Democratic National Committee. The belief behind that incredibly risky strategy is that the pro-Trump candidates are so extreme that they're bound to lose the general election in November. But remember also, that's exactly what the DNC said about Trump himself in 2016. We're joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an economist, radio show host, and author of the book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Welcome back, Jack. My pleasure. Always good to have you. Let's start off with this democratic strategy. It seems very, very risky to me. It bothers me very much. It's one thing to financially support a Trump loyalist for governor, governor of Maryland, let's say, a democratic state where this guy has no chance of winning in the first place. But it's an entirely different strategy to support candidates like that in a state like Arizona, where it's historically red, but maybe has been trending blue over the last couple of years. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it is very risky. Uh, you know, all they have to do is make a mistake and uh, support somebody that actually uh, wins. And, uh, you know, what is that? That's a signal to your people that, uh, wow, you know, <laughs> the Democrat Party is supporting uh, Trump, Trumpists, you know, and that's going to drive uh, progressives and maybe some independents away from the party, especially when you, you add to that the fact that uh, the DNC is doing everything it can to prevent progressives uh, from from joining uh, the ballot Good anywhere, shooting them down. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a it's a signal that, look, uh, you know, the party's moving to to the right is even willing to uh, elect Trumpists here. Uh, what's going on? And, um, you know, that's going to cause some splits with within their voting base. I think it's very risky. And, uh, you know, j just imagine if uh, this policy is responsible for uh, providing a majority in the House of Representatives of pro-Trumpist. You right. know, uh, that's that's going to have a, a, a big uh, post-election uh, uh, feedback effect. I would agree. I think the big shock of the night uh, last night was in Kansas, one of the reddest states in America, where voters by a 51, 59-41, 60-40 margin defeated a constitutional amendment that would have allowed the state legislature to ban abortion. The Democratic National Committee has already sent out fundraising emails. I got one at like six this morning saying that Kansas will turn the tide on abortion rights. That's certainly not the case in the South and in Texas. Is Kansas, do you think, a one-off or will abortion make the Democrats competitive where they otherwise may not have been competitive? Well, that's to be seen. Uh, you know, polls I've seen uh, indicate that the economy, inflation, and uh, the yeah. problems of the economy and recession, which is going to hit uh, by by then, uh, by November, um, is the number one issue. Uh, two thirds of the of the people place it at the number one or two issue, mm -hmm. and. Uh, the polls I've seen, uh, the abortion issue is way down the list. Uh, maybe five percent uh, of those polls indicates number one issue. Uh, well, those are the polls. The polls aren't always right. Uh, now, of course, you got this surprise going on in in Kansas. It really remains to be seen, but it's clear that the Democrats are rolling the dice on this abortion issue. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's going to really play very well, um, you know, in the red states. Uh, but who knows? We'll we'll see. I still think the economy is going to be the number one issue, especially if uh, the uh, inflation is not abated very much. And uh, by the end of the year, we're clearly uh, having problems with uh, 
you know, slipping into recession, which mm-hmm. were already there, in my opinion, totally and uh, the job loss, which always lags the recession. Totally agree. Jack, we learned yesterday from The Washington Post that the Democrats' theme in the 2022 election will be simple. It's that the Republicans are extremists. That plays into the DNC strategy to financially support the most extreme pro-Trump candidates in the primaries. Do you think that this is a winning strategy? It seems to me that in previous elections where the unofficial slogan was vote for me because I'm not the other guy, that really doesn't go very far. People, voters want to hear ideas. They don't want to just hear that the other guy's worse than I am. Well, they want to hear ideas of what the hell you got to do about inflation and the economy. Right. Number one, uh, I, I think this issue of, uh, oh, uh, you know, they're the, the Republicans and Trump Trump bogeyman uh, is is not going to have the uh, uh, the weight it did in 2020, uh, but the Democrats think so. Uh, I think they're wrong. I think uh, most of the the voters are going to vote on their pocketbook, uh, as Americans tend to do here. And uh, I think uh, the Democrats are in a very difficult position, particularly in the House, uh, when it comes to uh, the economy. They just haven't had. Um, you know, much effect on the economy here, their policies, uh, and, uh, you know, all the things, uh, solutions that uh, Biden has come up with uh, about reducing inflation, mm-hmm. you know, which includes this latest Inflation Reduction Act, which right. had nothing to do with inflation. Uh, I was going to ask uh, you that. It, you know, all of that, uh, we can talk about that and and uh, getting the Saudis to reduce, uh, uh, to, to produce more oil, you know, uh, all of that's not working. What's right. going to work is uh, the Federal Reserve, um, you know, whacking the economy by raising rates. But that's going to take about six months. So I did want to ask you about that. The, the This bill that's been agreed to between uh, Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer has in its name uh, that it's an anti-inflation bill. And then I saw a news release from the DNC yesterday saying that Joe Biden has reduced the national debt by $1.3 trillion in the last year and a half. That's the first I've heard of it, and I I haven't seen it in the news anywhere. Can you comment on how this bill is supposed to reduce uh, inflation and how in the world Joe Biden cut $1.3 trillion from the national debt? Yeah, well, I haven't seen the details of the bill, so it's kind of hard to comment on it. uh, but, you know, uh, simply uh, cutting spending somewhere mm-hmm. uh, is not really going to to deal with the inflation because the inflation is really a, an oil company, right. energy company, right. big corporations, price gouging and global supply problems due to sanctions. That's what's driving uh, the inflation and to attack uh, or, or say you're going to reduce uh, spending somehow. Because the problem is a demand side problem is nonsense. It's not a demand side problem. It's a supply side problem. And uh, bills, you know, that that deal with demand uh, uh, aren't aren't going to have much effect, in my opinion. I read the the most interesting thing yesterday, and I I was so glad that we were going to have you on the show today. Um, it's a little bit of an aside, but it was so bizarre. I had to bring it up. I read yesterday that there were very specific reasons why Donald Trump buried Ivana Trump at his golf course. She's the only person buried at the golf course, of course, because it's a golf course. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that cemeteries 
in order to be legally described as a cemetery in New Jersey, you only have to have one body. And cemeteries in New Jersey are exempt from sales and use taxes. <laughs> and um, they cannot be seized in a bankruptcy. So, you know, when we talk about about people making the best out of these complicated laws that that Congress foists upon us, uh, wow, this was this was a Ph.D. in using the uh, the tax code to further your your own political and financial well-being. Was it not? Yeah, well, you know, Trump has uh, his whole history is one of, uh, you know, uh, shady deals and voiding taxes and uh, not paying banks and so forth. You know, he's a real manipulator when it comes to uh, uh, tax codes and laws. That's how he uh, he's kept his businesses afloat for all these years. So I'm not surprised, really, but it is bizarre. I wasn't you know? surprised, but... W- the one thing that was shocking in this whole thing is that he actually charged Ivana's estate for a membership to the golf course. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You won't see too much of that uh, uh, in, in the national media. No, you know? <laughs> no. In fact, I had to go to the local New Jersey papers to find it. I, I looked yeah. up the law in the New Jersey code. And the only reporting was in these small online, you know, newspapers yeah. that cover local issues. I wonder, I wonder if you get a tax cut if he buries his dog next to Ivanka. <laughs> right, you get the pet cemetery discount. Right, right. Whether that qualifies as a cemetery? <laughs> oh my God, Jack. There was an important announcement this morning from the OPEC Plus members. Uh, they said they would increase daily oil production in September by only a hundred thousand barrels. They had earlier said that the increase would be 650,000 barrels, which is what they were supposed to have increased um, it for in uh, in July and August. And President Biden was asking for something closer to a million barrels a day increase. This seems to me to be a slap at Biden, and it has to be deeply troubling for the Europeans. What do you make of this announcement? It seems that it's shaping up to be a, a coming a tough coming winter for the Europeans. Yeah, well, you know, that was one of uh, Biden's big solutions to inflation to get the the oil and gas prices down. He was going to go to, uh, uh, you know, the Saudis and uh, get them to to pump, uh, you know, significant amount of uh, further supply into the global market to bring the price down and so forth. Uh, It's just another example of uh, how um, his inflation solutions uh, went bust here. Uh, Yeah, he wanted them to... uh, pump uh, 650,000 and they give them a the, one of the lowest ever increases in in, in OPEC uh you know in in its history 100,000 yes. barrels and what what did the Saudis get in exchange for it well they got an agreement for the US to sell them billions of dollars mm-hmm. of advanced weaponry and missiles that's right you know that now they're going to point at Iran and Yemen right so uh, exactly you know he got out out negotiated uh, very very easily here, uh, and uh, for the Europeans, uh, uh, you know, the whole strategy was uh, the U.S. was going to offset the, the problems with the energy and uh, uh, you know and sanctions for the Europeans for the winter by getting the Saudis to uh, significantly increase their output for Europe. That's not going to happen now. And uh, the U.S. oil companies certainly aren't going to fill fill the void. So uh, it's not just uh, the Europeans have no gas, <laughs> uh, you know, natural yeah. gas supply. Yeah. 
uh, for the winter. Now, they're, you know, are they going to even have enough oil? Um, you know, very clearly, uh, Europeans are going to have to wake up and realize that they're, they're just another colonial region for the U.S., and the U.S. is manipulating them for its its global mm-hmm. geopolitical objectives. And the Europeans are paying the price now, Big time. like some uh, uh, you know third third country um, colonial uh, uh, economy. So let me ask you about this Saudi production or Saudi and Emirati production. Uh, About three weeks ago, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman told French President Macron when Macron called to ask them to to raise production, he said they can't. Maybe just a little bit of wiggle room, but they essentially can't. He said they're they're producing at capacity and the Emiratis are producing at capacity. And sure enough, we see this this announced increase of only 100,000 barrels a day, which is nothing. do you think that that's true? I read today that that OPEC is producing at almost pre-pandemic levels, uh, and that the reason why we're struggling with production worldwide is because countries like Libya and Angola and Mozambique that aren't normally in the conversation have had to cut production because they have not uh, invested in their their uh, oil. Uh, production facilities to the point where they can keep them running without having to continuously take them down for maintenance. Uh, do you believe all that? Do you think that it, that it's true that the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis just can't increase production? No. No, I would change the word can't to won't. I would agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, you know, uh, as far as they're concerned, and, and U.S. oil companies are in the same position, they know recession is coming globally. You know, they know that uh, recession will mean a decrease in demand and their prices will fall. They don't Mm want to produce even more supply right now and uh, have the same effect uh, that the, you know, declining demand will have six, 12 months from now. You know, they don't want to produce more, you know, right before uh, they have a decline in demand. Uh, you know, their whole strategy is is to keep the supply short. U.S. companies, too. Refineries, you know, they're shutting down refineries. They're not increasing oil drigs and so forth in the U.S. They want to keep the supply tight to keep the price up. Well, the Saudis want to, and OPEC is doing the same thing. So to think that you're going to get the Saudis and OPEC to uh, go ahead and increase supply when they know a year from now— uh, they're going to have a problem with demand. Mm-hmm. It's just just uh, foolhardy. Yeah, I think that's right. We've we've heard so much in the past decade about fracking and fracked oil and how the U.S. is sitting on an ocean of shale oil. Fracking is cost effective when the price of oil is above sixty dollars a barrel. Well, the price of oil today is ninety four dollars a barrel. Fracking, of course, is terrible for the environment, but we haven't heard a word from the government about starting it up again or about the fracking industry, about uh, uh, increasing what it is that they're already doing. Why is that? Do we have a viable um, shale oil industry in, in the United States? Why isn't it making up for the, for the shortfall? Well, the, the U.S. is the largest producer of oil in the world. Yeah. You know, and much of that is fracked oil, you know. Uh, but if the answer to that is the same point I just made. 
they don't want to increase mm -hmm. the supply of oil, mm -hmm. you know, because that will lower their price and therefore their profits. I mean, they just reported their profits for the first half of this year, and every one of these oil oil producers and uh, refineries and so forth, the big ones and so forth, have made you know record profits of tens of billions of dollars in just a very short period of time because they've kept the supply tight, you know. Uh, right. So, yeah, they they could increase that uh, quite a bit, the output, you know, through fracking. By the way, to comment on fracking, you know, fracking releases, as you know, probably a, a hell of a lot of methane, oh, yeah. which is like 40 times worse than CO2. Oh, yeah, terrible. I, I, be I believe that they are keeping very quiet the fact that we have this big surge in methane uh, that's uh -huh. behind what's going on with this you know, rapid increase in, in uh, global, uh, uh, you know, temperatures yeah. and, and global climate change. Uh, uh, I, I think the, you know, the tundra is, um, you know, spewing off huge amounts of methane and the same thing with the fracking. And they're keeping that quiet because uh, if they release that, people will realize that, you know, you think you've got problems now with global warming and climate change in the U.S.? Right. <laughs> you haven't seen nothing yet it's get in the next much five worse. to ten years. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Finally, Jack, we hear with some regularity about how low oil production is going to impact European economies. The New York Times said yesterday that Germany will restart its coal-fired power plants, for example. Uh, the European Union is going to implement this 15% reduction in energy usage. But what about here in the U.S.? How do these oil prices impact inflation and, more importantly, economic growth? The government hasn't yet asked us to, you know, uh, use less energy, to stop driving on weekends, take shorter vacations. We're not hearing anything like that that they're hearing in Europe. Well, you know, uh, my analysis of inflation in the U.S., uh, shows that at least 60% of the current uh, consumer inflation is uh, is due to energy costs, rising energy costs. Not just gasoline, but uh, you know, airline uh, prices and airline fuel and uh, uh, home heating fuel and, and all of that, and then the pass-through uh, to uh, businesses that uh, just pass on the, the cost of diesel and so forth, right? Um, 60%. Uh, well, when you got inflation like that, how does that impact? Uh, well, a number of ways. Uh, you know, people uh, have to spend more uh, to get to work for for gasoline, so they spend less elsewhere. And of course, the real spending elsewhere reduces uh, GDP and economic growth. Spending more uh, for a, a gallon of gasoline uh, does not add anything uh, because it's price, uh, you know, inflation-adjusted GDP and economic growth. So, you know, it, it really takes a bite out of consumers, which is beginning to happen now. Uh, it also takes a bite out of businesses, because if uh, prices are rising, uh, you know, significantly, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, they don't, uh, you know, they don't feel good about investment because they don't know where the economy is going to be. And Already, if you look at the, the GDP numbers, uh, investment is uh, contracting in a number of, of key areas. So both consumption and investment, which is like together like 70, 80 percent of mm -hmm. uh, the economy, are negatively impacted uh, because of uh, uh, you know inflation going going forward. Uh, so it's going to have a big effect, uh, you know. And then uh, you, you, the real big impact is uh, with inflation that high, you get the Federal Reserve. Uh, going to take uh, inflation out on on the backs of consumers and whack demand mm -hmm. by causing a slowdown and recession 
and uh, therefore, um, you know, loss of jobs that are coming with a lag, uh, and therefore uh, wage incomes and, and consumption even further, uh, you know, that's the secondary effect uh, of inflation, the Fed policy, because that's the only policy of this administration, really, uh, to reduce inflation. Let the Fed whack the hell out of the economy, uh, slow the economy down, cause a recession, and that will take out uh, some of the inflation on the demand side. But it'll have nothing to do with inflation on the supply side, mm -hmm. the sanctions, the global supply chains, and, and price gouging and all that. The Fed policy won't do anything for that. So we're going to have a recession here. I believe we're already in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to have uh, continued inflation, maybe eight, not 8%, eight, 9%, but 4 to 5%, even with a recession. And that wow. you'll see in about six to nine months. Wow. And you expect a, another significant uh, interest rate increase at the September meeting, yes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the markets, uh, the stock markets and everything, uh, you know, said, oh, you know, this looks like it's uh, the peak and the Fed's going to reduce rates, you know. Oh, boy. Uh, and the stock market boomed with this uh, last uh, increase, you know. Uh, but I didn't believe that. The, the Fed's is going to continue raising rates because, you know, inflation's around 9 10%, mm -hmm. and uh, its target is 2%. Well, it's going to continue raising rates. And, uh, you know, the Fed governors recently came out and said, you're right, it's going to continue raising rates. So I, I think, uh, you know, we got a number of rate increases that are going to occur until it's very clear uh, that the economy is, is in recession. Uh, and, of course, right. I believe it is in recession uh, notwithstanding this debate that, uh, oh, two consecutive quarters of GDP don't really indicate uh, a recession, that it's the, the NBER economists who will define whether it's recession. Well, you know, there's never been a situation where you've had two negative, uh, uh, you know, declines in GDP, mm -hmm. and the NBER did not <laughs> agree oh, right. that we were in recession. <laughs> well, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Jack is an economist, a radio show host, and author of the book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. We appreciate him joining us. We've got a couple of, well, maybe we should take a short break. We've got a couple of other stories before our next guest that we wanted to get to, but that's what we'll do. We'll take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And uh, boy, seems to have been a pretty big whoopsie. Wow. In the uh, trial of Alex Jones, when uh, I guess just about an hour ago, the lawyer for the Sandy Hook parents who are suing Jones uh, revealed that Jones's lawyer seems to have sent him, uh, I think it is something like seven years worth of text 12, messages. 12, 12 years, years worth of text messages. By accident. 
every text message that Alex Jones has sent in the last 12 years yeah. by accident, and he sent it to the other side. Doesn't seem like this is going to be good for Jones' wow. defense here. You know, it's already not going well for, for Alex Jones. The Washington Post had a very comprehensive piece this morning. Alex Jones, of course, is being sued civilly by the parents of the Sandy Hook victims. Uh, for insisting that they were crisis actors, that they never had any children. There were no children killed at Sandy Hook. It was all a false flag. It's all this this usual nonsense that he spouts on his stupid show. Um, He's repeatedly skipped court hearings in order to do a show, and then he walks in in the middle of the hearing like he owns the place. He also filed for federal bankruptcy protection a couple of weeks ago, anticipating that he's going to lose this suit. The parents are suing for $150 million. So he's already filed for bankruptcy and then said on the stand yesterday that he has been granted bankruptcy protection. That is not true. Mm. The, the bankruptcy court has not heard his case <laughs> and it may reject his bankruptcy application, which it you know, can do. And so he was admonished by the judge last night and admonished by the judge again this morning because he just simply doesn't tell the truth Mm -hmm. under oath. At one point yesterday afternoon, the judge asked the jury to leave the courtroom and then she yelled at Alex Jones and said to him, do you understand what the word perjury means? Mm -hmm. Do you understand? Because she said, We watch your show, right? We watch your show, and then we listen to what you say when you come here, and you deny having said the things that we just watched you say Mm -hmm. on your show. Well, now we see this incredible tweet from Ben Collins, who is a senior reporter for NBC News. Mm -hmm. He says, wow, Sandy Hook parents' lawyer is revealing that Alex Jones's lawyers sent him the contents of Jones's phone by mistake in all capital letters. Quote, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me a digital copy of every text you've sent for years. Unquote. And then another quote. Do you know what perjury is? The lawyer asks. So I wouldn't be surprised if. It doesn't Charges seem like it's going to go well for, for it's Alex. Not, it's also, not. Also, if he go well. if he is able to file for bankruptcy to you know ahead of a, a potential uh, you know huge fine being yeah. levied on him, right? Uh, he will just be doing what we let huge corporations get away sure. with all the time. Johnson and Johnson, I think, is right. one that's in the in the process of doing this now. Ooh, oh, sorry, we gave you guys all cancer with our talcum powder. We're going to make a separate company that owns the talcum powder business and just happens to be bankrupt. So we can't pay you anything for it. So uh, Alex Jones shouldn't be allowed to do this and no more should uh, any of these giant corporations be allowed to do it either. I think 3M is being sued for um, earplugs it made that it said would protect people's uh, hearing. And now I think it's, it's splitting into two different groups, but I don't think it's necessarily related, but you know, we can, we can watch for that because maybe it's coming. Let me add one other thing that Ben Collins is, he's sort of live tweeting this thing. Mm -hmm. He says, um, even Jones is stunned by the fact that the Sandy Hook parents seem to have his emails. Jones just called it to their lawyers, quote, a Perry Mason moment. Mm -hmm. It's just shocking. Mm -hmm. And then he says the judge is instructing the jury on the entire contents of Alex Jones's phone, which was accidentally handed over from Jones's lawyers to the Sandy Hook parents lawyers. Quote, this is from the judge. What we do know 
is that it was not properly turned over when it should have been. Right. So, so, so it's going to be, I mean, they're going to be able to keep it and oh, use yeah. it and look at it. Yeah. 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 Well, be interesting yeah. to watch and appropriately uh, theatrical, given that it is Alex Jones. Hey, how about we talk about something totally different? Yeah. <laughs> what to talk about. Sure. Uh, uh, well, I mean, it is still about, I suppose, uh, digital content. I'm not going to try to link these too much. Uh, I want to talk about what is going on between Google, YouTube, and Rumble. Uh, joining yes. us, as so often, for conversations about technology and privacy, we have Chris Garafa, technologist and privacy expert. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, great to be on with you both. Thank you so much. Welcome so, back. We have uh, yet another sort of antitrust lawsuit against Google, Google, this time launched by Rumble. Rumble in 2021 sued Google, saying the company uses its essential, what is essentially its search engine monopoly, to crush YouTube's competitors, Rumble, of course, being among them. Uh, Google moved to have the lawsuit dismissed, but on Friday, that motion was denied, which, according to uh, journalist Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, who's been reporting on this, is pretty unusual. So the lawsuit can move forward now to the discovery stage, giving Rumble the right to obtain from Google a broad and sweeping range of information about its practices, including internal documents on Google's algorithmic manipulation of its search engine and the onerous requirements it imposes on companies dependent upon its infrastructure to all but force customers to use YouTube, to use Greenwald's phrasing. Um, and I do want to get into the tech weeds here in one second, but I did want to ask you first to just comment on this um, assessment that it is rare for antitrust suits against tech corporate giants like Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon to avoid early motions to dismiss. Is that true? I mean, and if it is, why, right? Is it just because these monopolies are so big and sort of feel like inevitable, and so we just don't see them as monopolies anymore? What is the justification for dismissing these lawsuits? Well, these companies have you know millions and millions of dollars that they spend on 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 lawyers, yeah. uh, whether internally or external representation. They you know are ready for all of these situations, all of their assessments include, and, and this is for any company at this scale, like what are the legal ramifications of what we're doing? The lawyers are going to look at it, but because they're paid by the company, they're going to say, we're going to look at this and we're going to figure out exactly how to get a, around mm. a potential lawsuit. Right. Uh, this is, you know, you mentioned Johnson and Johnson uh, in, in your past uh, past comments. But I mean, any any company, car companies, big tech, anyone is going to have these lawyers um, as well as the lobbyists. And we you know, we can't forget the lobbyists that mm -hmm. they have that actually shape the kinds of laws that you can uh, that, you know, that you can sue under for various types of, of claims. But yeah. I think this one can go forward. And I think we can say the fact that, you know, there has been such an outroar, an uproar against uh, companies like Google and its, you know, subsidiary YouTube. Well, I mean, Alphabet owns both Google and YouTube now, but, you know, Facebook and Meta, Twitter, and so many of these other companies, people have been so outraged by their behavior when it comes to monopoly, when it comes to privacy practices, you know, all of these things that I'm not surprised that this particular uh, lawsuit is going to go through. I don't think it has much to do with Rumble, that particular part of it, but I, I think it's a reflection of just the, the general anger that people have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what what do you think Rumble is going to find? 
Uh, I gather that it is going to try to show that Google uses its domination of search engines to promote YouTube results and downgrade results for other competitors. Uh, it is going to try and show that Google basically forces the companies that use its infrastructure to use YouTube and not other platforms. Uh, I wonder what else you think they're going to be looking for and, and what you think they will find. You know, Will they find that Google is doing this and be able to demonstrate that? I think they're, they're likely going to get two primary types of documents. One would be a set of policy documents. Here's what our product does. Here's what the search engine does. Um, and these will be very complicated, but they'll also likely or potentially get technical specs about how it does what it does. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're talking about, you know, Rumble as a platform that is an alternative to YouTube. You know, many... Uh, Many shows, including this one, I believe, are yeah. on Rumble now after being removed from YouTube. I think a lot of alternative journalists also looking at platforms like Rumble and others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very difficult to find that content on uh, on Google. I, in fact, I tried to send somebody a link to this show and had a hard time finding the Rumble link unless I typed in Rumble Political Misfits. Right. Very difficult to find the link to the show. Mm -hmm. And we have to say, you know, that is at least partly intentional, mm -hmm. not just for the political context, but also the fact that Google owns YouTube. When I say Google, of course, I mean Alphabet. Alphabet. They, they own YouTube. They want people on their properties, right? They want people to stay from, from Google to Gmail to Google Docs to YouTube and all of the other properties that they own and invest in so that they can continue to track. So there's, of course, that financial aspect of it. There is certainly the political aspect because we know that Google you know, has a news aggregator. It is not its own news website. And still yet they, a couple of years ago, deplatformed RT and Sputnik. You weren't going to find either of those outlets in the Google news aggregator, uh, no matter how hard you look. So it's both of these aspects of it that we have to look at when we're talking about what Rumble is going to see. Mm -hmm. So what could they possibly get? I think they're not necessarily going to get something that is going to make a whole lot of sense to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of internal lingo and documentation. We're talking about algorithms that have been modified and tweaked and rewritten over many, many years uh, that, you know, in many cases, the engineers don't even really understand anymore mm -hmm. <clears throat> or that well, they, they can't say here were the inputs and here are the outputs and here's why? Um, because uh, the, they're using machine learning, they're using analytics and all of these other things in order to uh, continually feed the algorithms. That's a little scary. It's a little scary. I mean, I don't know. It's a little scary to have this. I mean, Google does have an enormous amount of control over what kind of information people receive. And it's scary enough to think that it is being uh, or potentially is being uh, specifically manipulated, but it's worse if it's actually even out of their control. Um, and so I, I uh, you know, I, I would be interested to hear your response to that, Chris, but I feel like kind of related, you know, you said that what they will probably get is a whole bunch of information related to Google's policy and then a whole bunch of tech specs. And I wonder if uh, the possible daylight between the two is going to play a crucial role in in lawsuits like these and how much, I guess, sort of 
tech knowledge and literacy comes into it when you talk about ac actually seeking justice? Because I doubt Google has a policy paper that says somewhere, uh, use our monopoly power to crush competitors. You know what I mean? They're not going to say, oh, we're going to try to do this and this to, to make things fair and make uh, the best search engine we can make. And it will be, I suspect, in in the application that they achieve the, the results they want, which is, of course, to promote uh, their uh, companies. And, you know, people have definitely argued promote a particular uh, political position. And so, you know, is in order to, I guess, get a, a just outcome, it would seem to require a certain level of uh, technical expertise here. Certainly. And I hope Rumble has the capacity to bring in some really smart experts to, you know, independent experts to look at these documents, to, to you know, be part of the these hearings, to do that. I think, you know, when we're looking at what Google potentially could be saying, and of course, I have no internal knowledge of this, but what they could potentially be saying is not, we're going to keep people on YouTube. But what they could say is something like, we want to give people the best experience, you know, optimized user experience so that what that means is if they're logged into Google, they're going to be logged into YouTube as well mm -hmm. so that it's a simple transition from the Google search to the YouTube video. And they've already embedded that video, you know, in the search. I mean, go to Google and search for like a music video. Chances are it's already, play, you know, you can yeah. play it right from your search results. Yeah. That's the kind of language that companies like Google and Facebook and others try to use when it comes to keeping people on their platforms, that it's about the user experience. Uh, let me also ask you what you think is going to happen in this lawsuit, right? Does it does it continue? Does Google actually decide that it's going to go up against, uh, you know, that it's, it's going to roll the dice or does it try to settle? Is there some kind of pattern here to refer to? You know, I, I wish I had a crystal ball to know what was going to happen here, but I think Google is going to fight this till until it can't anymore. You know, it's going to put its millions and millions of dollars worth of lawyers to good use, frankly. Mm -hmm. They don't want this information out there because they know there will be a backlash because we're all going to have an innate understanding of the fact that Google is not this, uh, you know, player that just says, okay, you want search results, here's search results. Right. They are a political engine. They are, you know, optimized for money, optimized for profit, for advertisers. And on both of those, I think those go against what people want in a search engine, an email service, a video service. I, th I think they're going to fight it. I think this is going to drag on for years, unfortunately, because Google will just file motion after motion just because they lost, you know, this one doesn't mean they're not going to file more. So I think it's really important, you know, that we keep an eye on this while also understanding this could go, you know, many, many years. Yeah. Oh, fun. Um, you mentioned the role of, of politics here, and I, I want to um, come back to that a little bit. I mean, of as you mentioned, we are on Rumble. Uh, Russian media has been booted off a lot of other platforms. We're on Rumble. A lot of conservative uh, analysts and content creators use Rumble, as do a lot of independent and left-leaning media that have been you know, steadily deplatformed, demonetized, uh, and uh, otherwise sort of uh, had their had their uh, views restricted. And so, you know, it, it is always just conservatives that get the attention. You know what I mean? Like there's lots of independent media. There's lots of le left media on these platforms. But uh, these fights often tend to be categorized when they get any attention at, at all as uh, whiny conservatives being babies. 
right? And so I wonder how much you think politics uh, is going to affect the perception of what really should be uh, a court battle over the use and abuse of, of power and, uh, and monopoly power, and how could it affect actual outcomes? Well, I, I think what we see when it comes to like the conservatives moving to platforms like Rumble is, and for the most part, it's going back to actually you were just talking about Alex Jones right mm -hmm. before this, going back to somebody like Alex Jones being removed from Twitter, right, and you know being deplatformed that way, and then other conservatives saying, "Oh, that could happen to me next." And I mean, if you're listen, if you if you're putting out the same ideas as Alex Jones, you need to really reconsider what you're doing with yourself, mm -hmm. but. When you, you know, it, it, it's it's a response that it could happen to them. Whereas I think when we look at it from the left, there's a lot of people who have been shut down, mm -hmm. a lot of outlets that have been deplatformed either permanently or temporarily who move because they can't have a platform on Patreon, on Spreaker, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, or anywhere there. I mean, look at, you know, Lee Camp, for example, mm -hmm. just completely shut down, not mm -hmm. just RT America, but Lee Camp's own personal shows. And so now, you know, he's over on uh, Locals, uh, you know, one of these other sites, too. Mm -hmm. So I think the main difference, you know, on the left and the right is that, but also, you know, Congress regularly has these hearings and certainly did over the last couple of years about saying, you know, there's bias against conservatives, but mm -hmm. no one, of course, talked about the bias against sites like Venezuela Analysis and others, uh, mm -hmm. or, of course, Sputnik and RT. Yeah. And so then it tends to be, it is presented as uh, Google, Google's good, Google's sort of omnipotent, but generally benign. How could anyone uh, go up against Google? And it's just these e evil little platforms who are jealous they're not getting any attention. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it really, it does seem like it sort of poisons the well. Right. It, it absolutely does. And it actually really distracts in, in some ways, like a framing that you see often from the conservative media really distracts from the actual issue here. Is, but we should keep in mind, Google does have all of this power. Google has yeah. you know basically built up this power that it has. Um, and it's practically impossible to get away from it. That's why, you know, there, there are moves. People say, OK, well, don't use Gmail, don't use Google search. And, you know, fine, that's an individual choice. But that individual choice isn't going to impact this system. That's why we need to have these movements to say, you know, yeah, we need to see what information Google has. And if that's going to be via a rumble lawsuit, then that's how we're going to get it. But we also have to take the information we get from that and really implement an exact change into how Google is allowed to or why it's allowed to have this kind of outsized influence uh, on on a global culture, really. And maybe just consider maintaining a principle and not deciding that because your principle uh, protects some people who you personally dislike uh, to, to jettison it. I have to say, I mean, just that toss away line like, oh, a, a, a rare instance in which an antitrust motion wasn't immediately dismissed. Just think like how... I wish people could remember uh, Bill Barr trying to go after uh, different marijuana uh, companies for antitrust mm -hmm. violations mm -hmm. while Google exists. You know, Apple exists. Uh, all of the, what, six big meat packers in the U.S. exist and completely dominate the market. It is like they grow so big, they cast such a great shadow that you cannot see beyond it and recognize them for what they are. Chris, I, I have another Two topics for you, if we have time. Uh, I did want to just ask you about this headline about uh, the U.S.'s system for managing organ donations. 
The Washington Post had a story yesterday on how creaky, out of date, and insecure that system is. Uh, it says it's got it got its hands on a government review that found that the system for getting donated kidneys, livers, and hearts to desperately ill patients relies on out of date technology that has crashed for hours at a time and has never been audited by federal officials for security weaknesses or other serious flaws. And honestly. On one hand, it does seem like everybody and their brother works in tech or IT now, right? And in particular, uh, in the Democratic Party, you know, you, you have functionaries kind of swinging through a revolving door with Silicon Valley. So everybody's doing tech. Everybody knows what's happening. Everybody's hobnobbing in, in Silicon Valley. And on the other hand, uh, the U.S. government is just sort of blowing on the game and then putting it back in the Nintendo or turning things off and on. And so, you know, I, I, one, I wonder just specifically how, how serious some of these potential failings are. Uh, but then two, you know, is this just sort of illustrative of a, a broader problem with tech literacy or, or modernization programs in our government? Yeah, I think we might be dating ourselves with that N Nintendo reference you there, Michelle. You just blow on but, it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. This is the U.S. government relying on a private nonprofit, UNOS, uh, that is paid $6.5 million a year by the Health Resources and Service Administration to maintain the U.S. transplant system. I mean, UNOS is a, a, a not-for-profit not organization, but that doesn't mean it's not making a bunch of money they actually have on their homepage, top right, big green focus, give now. So yeah. they're collecting donations in addition to making the six and a half million dollars, uh, which, by the way, according to the Washington Post, is most of that money comes from patient fees. Yeah. Charging Right. So, look, you know, the USDS, the U.S. Digital Service, actually does some really fantastic work when it comes to making government websites usable and accessible. If anyone ordered those free at-home COVID tests, sure there were certainly problems with those policies. But that website mm -hmm. was extremely easy to use, and that's because it was built in conjunction with USDS. I am a big fan of the people who do that work there, and really, that should be this should be taken under. Under, under the government. It should not be up to a private nonprofit organization, organization, excuse me, mm -hmm. to be running this system, to be taking in six and a half million dollars per year and not being responsible to the government and therefore to the people who are paying for these services mm -hmm. through our taxes or through these ridiculous patient fees. This is just another issue, too, where, I mean, outside of the tech realm, we need a national a real national health care system. Mm -hmm. We need Medicare for all. Everyone should have the right to health care, including when needed, uh, this kind of, of transplant service. Um, it is completely ridiculous. They said, you know, Uno says it's got millions of lines of code and it's a trade secret. I'm sorry that that should not apply to health care. This is critical infrastructure that if it goes down and when it goes down, because of course it has that people can die or suffer serious permanent harm because they haven't been able to get the organ that they need. Yeah, yeah.
Finally, just just for giggles, Chris, a fun one. Uh, what do you make? What do you make of the Tim Hortons data tracking saga and the latest twist, uh, which is, hey guys, sorry about collecting uh, your your movement data every couple of minutes for a really long time with our app and not telling you about it. Would you like a donut and a cup of coffee? <laughs> I mean, I guess go get your donut and cup of coffee, but no, we need more from these types of settlements. I mean, look, this is not atypical of this kind of of situation, though. You know, uh, when Target settled with uh, 46 states uh, a number of years ago, I think it was 2017, over a data breach, um, they people basically got forty dollars. <laughs> oh everyone who was impacted mm-hmm. got 40 or so dollars. That's 225,000 people. So when we talk about, you know, oh, these are huge settlements. Yes. But remember how many people are impacted by this. Mm-hmm. Um, Equifax, which had a huge breach of a lot of personal information, said that they're giving away free credit monitoring. That's all I got so you have, from the Equifax you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. breach. Yeah. I turned I turned it down because I said, well, how do I know you're protecting my privacy now? Yeah, uh, you have to give them their Social Security again. So, yeah, I mean, I, this is very, very normal. Unfortunately, we see these big numbers, you know, 70 million, 100 million. But it really comes down to um, the lawyers are getting paid. State governments often take a lot of this money as well as penalties or fines. And if you've got 46 states splitting out, let's say $40 million, I mean, that's not a whole lot of money there, but collectively it certainly is. Um, so no, we need, I mean, this is the, the Tim Horton situation. It was just, it was a travesty. I mean, they easily could have prevented that just as Target could have, and certainly the way Equifax could have by just installing a software patch that Equifax admitted it just hadn't gotten around to yet. Mm -hmm. So no, there needs to be really significant uh, and major penalties uh, for for these companies. That was Chris Garafa, our favorite privacy uh, expert and technologist. They also co-host the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, you want to tell our listeners where they can find that podcast and what you guys have been talking about recently? Sure. You can go over to covertactionmagazine.com and click on the podcast link. And we just today, Wednesday, released an episode all about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So check that out. Yeah. Thanks again, Chris. We are going to go straight through here and get to some final headlines. I yeah. have an update here uh, on a. St- I don't know if you, John, did you see the story of the small plane crash where the co-pilot inexplicably jumped, jumped out of out. the plane at the yeah. last minute? At first, they thought maybe he fell out, but listen, it's it's almost impossible to fall out of a plane. He jumped. Seems like he jumped. Uh, turns out, okay, so this is going deep into the weeds. I don't have time to explain it in eight minutes. But Seth Harp, who we've talked about on the show multiple times before, he writes for Rolling Stone. He writes for Harper's Magazine. He did some very good coverage in Ukraine. And he has also been all over uh, the uh, Fort Hood. Yeah. No. Is that the one in North Carolina? No. Uh, uh, What's the? There's Camp Lejeune and uh, the Fort uh, Bragg. Bragg. Fort Bragg, uh, over the mysterious deaths of soldiers at Fort Bragg. Right. And he seems to be coming to the conclusion that a lot of this is about drugs and a lot of this is about drug uh, use, drug sales uh-huh. and drug smuggling. Right. So uh, if you want to find out something to that, you can go and look at his Twitter feed to yep. see, you know, his sort of uh, consistent reporting over time. I'm not going to try to encapsulate it or suggest that he is drawing any, you know, firm conclusions. Right. Not trying to get him in trouble. Looks like. The 
airport the plane took off of is what he says, the same little airport in Rayford, North Carolina, Uh that special forces soldiers used to traffic cocaine and methamphetamine. Uh Uh-oh. And someone else is uh, piping up saying she was a court reporter around there. I'm not saying drugs are trafficked through that airport, but I wouldn't doubt it. So could be a, a very weird little story just got a little bit weirder. That is the same airport that activist friends of mine shut down a decade and a half ago because it was being used by unmarked CIA planes as a, a kickoff point for rendition flights. Oh, what a nasty. Oh, man, it's just always all together. It's wow. always all together. Let's do the renditions out of here. We'll do the drug smuggling wow. out of here. Are you going to do any, you know, you know the, any they, other bad business here? The airport's owner is just some guy, some local guy. And well, the CIA went to him and said, hey, we want to, you know, use your airport. And he said, yeah, well, if the check clears, you're welcome to use it. And he wouldn't shut it down. So what they started doing is just laying down in the street, in the road, in front of the airport and j- just Messing up traffic, and it, they made themselves such pains in the ass mm. that the guy finally canceled his contract with the CIA. Mm. Uh, Seth reports that the former owner of the airport was Gene Thacker, a legendary Green Beret who was indicted for cocaine traffic yeah. in the in the eighties. I his remember his son him. was a Delta Force contract pilot who was sentenced to forty years in prison in twenty nineteen oh. for trafficking methamphetamines. So, oh my God! There's a huge story there. Maybe. I don't know, but that definitely the guy jumping out of the plane caught my eye first. And then everything that's come afterward has been even more interesting. Wow. What else you got? Do you want me to tell you I, about a new thing to be scared of, John? Or do you have, do you want to tell me? Anything? Oh, no, I'd love to hear something. I should. Oh, be scared well, of. it's sharks. It's sharks walking on land. Even better than what I thought you yes. were going to say. Now, to be fair, this is a very cute little shark. Uh, that I think only lives uh, around Papua New Guinea, although I am not positive. (laughs) It appears to be pretty small. It's obviously not going out for jogs or anything, but uh, Discovery Channel does have footage of these very beautiful little, like, mottled sharks using their fins to crawl up and over rocks in shallow water, get to the other side. You can see them go. Oh, my gosh. You can't see me on the radio, but I'm pretending that my arms are fins. And they sit, they get up right out in the air, hang out for a minute, go back down on the other side. Yeah. So evolution in process. In in just a couple of years, uh, we can be running away from land sharks chasing us. Wow. Mm -hmm. But I do have good news. Yeah, tell me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's about cheese. Um, Apparently, you know, you know, uh, Jarlsberg. Cheese, yes. which is yes. for some reason like always really cheap at the store. It's one oh. of the cheapest kinds. You know, I think. it's at you can get it really, really cheap at Aldi's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get a lot of things cheap at Aldi's. To be fair, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hey, guys. Um, a new study. This is being reported by uh, Metro UK has found that actually, Jarlsberg specifically is good for you. It's good for you in the ways other cheese is good for you and that it it helps your bones get stronger because it's got calcium and whatever. Uh, but it's not bad for you in the same way other cheeses uh, can be bad for you. And the way they did this trial, uh, they took 66 healthy women who were given either 57 grams of Jarlsberg every day or 50 grams of camembert every day for six weeks. I would love to be... <laughs> on any side of this trial or eat both of them. I'll be your control. I'll be your anything for all this cheese. Um, So they found that uh, the women who ate Jarlsberg 
had calcium and magnesium levels uh, improve. Mm-hmm. And their levels of proteins that help bones renew and stay young rose significantly. Wow. And they, the others didn't have that. I guess they had the bad stuff. So there you go. <laughs> A little plug for Jarlsberg here to end the show. I'm assuming I'm not supposed to say Jarlsberg, right? It's Norwegian. You're right. Thank You're you. right. I love to be right. We have a couple of minutes. I wanted to tell you there's been an update on uh, on these bodies found in barrels in uh, Lake Mead. Give it to me, John. Well, they've decided that they're going to do autopsies on these things. Mm-hmm. So the, the first one that they found in the barrel, it had an enormous bullet hole in the skull. Oh, okay, so, so you that, think, I think yeah, it was that. Yeah, exactly. So they said that one's not uh, a big surprise. They treated it as a murder from the moment the body was found. Uh, just today, the coroner officially ruled it a homicide mm-hmm. based on the giant bullet hole in the skull. Mm-hmm. The other two bodies are a little bit tougher. And they weren't in barrels. They were just really, really deep. And uh, as the waters receded, you know, they sort of came up. Well, it turns out that Lake Mead, despite the fact that it's in the middle of the desert, is very cold. Mm. And with cold water, it tends to push bodies down lower. Uh, That's why bodies don't decompose in Lake Superior. Oh, because okay. the water's so cold, it sort of preserves them, right? So you can have a 20-year-old body down there, 30-year-old body, and it still it's looks pretty still, good. Still pretty good. <laughs> so you might so go out with it. They're saying that that these other bodies may have been drowning victims, not victims of of homicide, and that when they when they died, they sank because of the temperature of the water. And um, when the rescue crews went out to look for them, they were already too deep. Uh, it turns out that Lake Mead was so deep and so cold that there was a certain cutoff depth where rescue crews just couldn't go any lower. Huh. So these these other two may be accidents. Wow. That's it. So, yeah, no need to wait the body if you throw it into some place cold. Unfortunately, Lake Mead, no longer like that. <laughs> Bad for all of us. John, next time I want it to be grisly homicide details and not just the tragedy of drowning. <laughs> we'll have to save that for another day. I want to say thanks, as always, to all of our guests and to our producers and engineers here at Radio Sputnik. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you all for listening and commenting in the chat. It was fun today. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow.